Turn your Bibles, please, to John chapter 5. told Pastor Greg this morning that I <clears throat> wished I had two weeks to finish this passage. I'm going out of town, so I won't be here next week to finish the passage, so we're going to do it today. His comment was, skip the introduction, which is exactly what I'm going to do. <clears throat> Although it's a really good introduction. passage we began last week, verse, uh, uh, I think I started at 17, but 19 is where this discourse begins. <clears throat> and uh, it's fitting that this is that there are several discourses, long passages of Jesus speaking throughout the Gospel of John. And it's fitting, does it show up on the screen? It's fitting that um, that this is the first one, uh, because <clears throat> it deals with the primary problem in religious thinking, in the minds of so many people, and that is, how can a person know God? And supposing that it's possible to know God, how can we verify that those who claim things about God are speaking the truth. Well, Christianity, we have a unique take on this position because we believe we can know God because God has spoken. That He's spoken clearly and that what He says is true. And we have here in these 30 verses... Uh, 19 through 47, this discourse. And there are two main parts to it. I started last week, the first part, and we'll finish up today. Verses, um, verses uh, 24 through 30. And Jesus teaches in this first discourse that a man can know God, a man can know the Father because God the Father has revealed it in God the Son. We looked at six, 16 through 23 last week, and <clears throat> it really takes, goes straight to the heart of that particular question of exclusive faith in Jesus Christ being the most important issue for any person. And that section includes Jesus' claims about himself, declares it more boldly than he ever has up to this point in his ministry. And the religious world, even today, doesn't, doesn't take kindly to Jesus' uncompromising statements about himself. And today we get this reactionary hatred when we deal with the exclusivity of Christianity, the unbending claims of Jesus Christ, which is why we really can't claim that he's a good moral teacher. We talked about this last week. You have three choices. He's either who he claimed to be, God, <coughs> Or he isn't who he claimed to be, and he knew it. That makes him a liar. Or he isn't who he claimed to be, he didn't know it. That just makes him a crazy nut. There's no middle ground. He can't just be a good moral teacher. In today's text, this intimate relationship between Jesus Christ and the Father really continues this dominant truth that we started last week, but even it gets more more bold, communicates it even more 
clearly, although even in his communi- clear communication, there are aspects of this text that's hard for us to understand. What is a question is the incredible claim of Jesus' relationship with the Father. The Jews had no problem with God being God. The Jews, these Jews that he's talking to had no difficulty with a sovereign God ruling the earth and being responsible for judgment and for resurrection and those sorts of things. They didn't have any problem with that. Their problem, what's it going to be? Jesus claims to that power. The judge of all the earth is arguing his case in court here. And just to catch up what we talked about last week, and he affirmed his unity with the Father in 19 and 20. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. And the motivating factor for all of this is the love. Verse 20, for the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. And so there's this clear clear claim of equality that Jesus and the son is making uh, with the father, the unique son of God. He's got an intimate relationship of union with the Father and the glue that sort of binds that relationship together. He says, here's the love that the Father has for the Son and consequently the Son for the Father we see in other places as well. And next we see the authority that they share. 21, for as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to all he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. So we get two illustrations here of this authority that is shared between the Father and the Son. The authority in the, in the, in the realm of life, the emphasis on the resurrection... And the authority in the realm of judgment that the Father is actually given to the Son. The Son has the same authority as the Father, including the authority to judge all. That's the prerogative of God only. And just another demonstration of the deity of Jesus Christ. And then there's this equality of honor that they have, verse 23 that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. The unity of activity, receiving honor, uh, receiving worship, just further claims of Jesus to His own deity. If the Son were not God, then it would be wrong to honor the Son just as you honor the Father. And it also means that if you, do, if you don't honor the Son, then you don't really honor the Father either. There are many, many religions around the world that fall on that particular truth. Look at the middle of all this. <clears throat> what he says in the second sentence of verse 20. And greater works than these... Will he show him? Now, what are the greater works he's talking about? Well, I've got to go to the next verse. Father raises the dead, gives them life. And then verse 22, the father judges no one, giving judgment to the son. What he claims there in, in verses 21 and 22, he demonstrates in our text today. So we look at that a little further. Beginning at verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is here. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. 
For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. He has given him authority to execute judgment because he's the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in their tombs will hear his voice. Think of that. Every person who has ever lived will be resurrected. And he says, do not marvel at this. Those who are in their tomb, uh, do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming when all who are in their tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment, or condemnation, your Bible might say. In this passage, there are four resurrections that he talks about, but I'm going to simplify those four and just boil them down into to, to two. First is spiritual. This is your outline for today. Spiritual resurrection. It's not even on the screen because you can remember it. Spiritual resurrection, physical resurrection. Say that with me. Spiritual resurrection, physical resurrection. You've got the outline. First spiritual resurrection, 24 and 26. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. This is the second time. You see what he says? Truly, truly, I say to you. It's the second time Jesus has said that. I think he said it in 19, verse 19. says this 26 times in John's gospel. Now, some of you anal types are going to be flipping through John all day, counting how many times he said, truly, truly. Just Google the Bible and search the Gospel of John. It's a lot easier. What does he mean by that? 26 times he says, listen to this. It's like the, the, the town crier saying, hear ye, hear ye. Let me make this clear. Pay attention to what I'm about to say 26 times. What I'm about to say is very important. Jesus is telling these hearers. And the hearers, by the way, John just calls them Jews, but it's not just a group of Jews that you know showed up to decide they're going to kill Jesus. No, these are the Jewish leaders who are following him around, trying to catch his slip-ups. And yet we have this proclamation of this truth about Jesus Christ by Jesus Christ is professed here, and it's profound. He who hears my words and believes in him who sent me has eternal life, or your Bible might say everlasting life. Jesus lifts himself far above just any created man or even any exalted created man. Think of those two things. Hear my word, have everlasting life. Hear my word, have eternal life. This is either, like I said earlier, the babbling of some insane, crazy nut or the words of God. There's no neutral ground. He described the resurrection of lost sinners, how how a dead soul can be made alive to eternal life. Paul talks about that in Ephesians 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world. And skipping to verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which, which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And so Jesus says, Whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. A lost sinner 
Okay, if he has eternal life, that means he had something before then, which had to be death. Paul talks about that when he says, you are dead in your trespasses when you were lost. A lost sinner is a lifeless, helpless corpse. Not necessarily lifeless. A lost sinner is a walking, talking, breathing corpse. No matter how the undertaker prepares the corpse, it's still dead. And no corpse is deader than the other corpse. If you're dead, you're dead. The lost sinner is helpless to save himself. And certainly a lost sinner can't give himself life. So how are dead sinners raised from the dead? By hearing God's Word and believing on God's Son. Remember, this whole thing started because he healed this invalid man at the pool of Bethesda who's waiting for this, um, this uh, strange event to take place, this superstitious event to take place. And, and uh, the water is bubbling, so somebody can put him in the water and he can be healed. He's been waiting 39 years for this. It, did, it, it wasn't going to happen. Jesus called him out. And by his word, he was healed. Jesus healed him. Everybody he raised from the dead. He spoke a word and they were raised. Lazarus, come forth. The widow of Nain, her son, was raised from the dead. Jesus spoke and he was raised from the dead. The daughter of Jairus. Jesus spoke, and she was raised. And, and just as Jesus heals and raises from the dead by His Word, so also He brings the dead soul to eternal life by His Word. He provides cleansing by His Word, John 15 tells us. He provides judgment by His Word, John 12 tells us. The one who belongs to the Father hears the Father's words. Hmm. Here's what he says. John eight forty seven. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you're not of God. And so hearing Jesus' words, he's saying here, is identical to hearing the Father's word. Since the Son only speaks what the Father says. Look at verse 19. Truly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord. That's speak as well. Look at verse 30. I can do nothing on my own. That's speak as well. So he can only speak the Father's words. They are identical words. And hearing in this context... And in most contexts, when we talk about hearing the Word of God in the New Testament or hearing the words of Jesus in the New Testament, it deals with believing and obeying as well. Now, the belief part he mentions. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me. Belief is spelled out and it's the object of the one who sent Jesus. Now, why would he say that? Why would he not say, believes me? Well, it's not wrong for Jesus to be the object of our faith. But because the immediate context is concerned to show us how the Son, in all He says and all He does, mediates the Father's will, then it's only right that Jesus would point to the Father in this case. As the words and deeds of the Son are the words and deeds of the Father, so faith placed in the Son is faith placed in the Father who sent Him. You get that? The one who hears and believes in this way, he says, has eternal life and will not be condemned. 
Hebrews tells us that God's Word is living and powerful. And he tell, and Jesus tells us here that that Word can raise you from spiritual death. Those of you who haven't trusted Christ here today can be raised from spiritual death simply by hearing His Word and believing. And eternal life, and He says you receive eternal life, that's more, just, that's more than just a life that doesn't end. It's much more than that. And the assumption here is that we don't have it. We don't have eternal life. But John 5, this wonderful passage, is one of the New Testament's basic passages on eternal life. It's more than endless life. It's a unique quality. It's a unique character. It's God's own life. It's what eternal life is. It's the life the believer lives today. It's not the life that we only live in heaven. Eternal life is the life that the believer lives today. You believers today are living eternal life this very moment. And that means that you can never die spiritually again, nor can you come into judgment. Paul teaches us that. Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation, no judgment for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's the life of God in your soul. And to hear His Word, to believe means salvation. To reject His Word means condemnation. He tells us later in John 12, The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. So we see this tension in verse 25. The hour is coming and is is now here. We see this tension of what is coming, the future, and what is right now. I say to you, the hour... Oh, he says... Truly, truly, again, I say to you, the hour is coming and is now here. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. That tension between what is now and what is to come. Now in verse 28, he's just talking about what is to come. Here he shows us that tension between the two. And again, these Orthodox Jews that are standing around there listening to him, they would understand what he's saying about God. They would understand eternal life. They would understand resurrect. They would understand physical resurrection. These Orthodox Jews would understand that, but not that Jesus would be the one to cause it to happen. That's a problem. And yet Jesus did not come just to give us longer life. He came to give us resurrection life. You see that in verse 29, resurrection of life. John 10.10, He came to give us abundant life. So it is the voice of God that calls forth the dead and dead souls and those who hear will live. And this voice, this life-giving word, is nothing other, Jesus says, than the voice of God. I speak what the Father speaks. It's imparted by the life-giving Spirit. And, it, and it's so powerful that it can even give life to dry bones that stand up and walk, as Ezekiel tells us. It's a life that is bathed in the vitality and the holy character of God. And it's given to us through spiritual birth or resurrection. In verse 26, he says, For as the Father has life in himself, 
So he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. That word for is important. It ties it to what he's just said. Now, how can Jesus do this? This verse explains that he can provide judgment and he can create resurrection life simply by his powerful word. And if Jesus is who he claims to be, if he's God, this is the same word that was spoken that put the planets and the stars in place. Nothing's beyond what Christ says as he speaks God's word. And why? Because he's life in himself. For as the Father has life in himself, God is self-existent. He is always, always past, always future, the living God. You, you and I, we're just derived creatures. We get our life from God. He uses our parents and the environment around us to create our lives. And He can take it away just as easily. But the Son, to the Son alone, God has imparted life in Himself. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. And this was before the beginning. This is why you can proclaim John in another book, in 1 John, proclaim Jesus to be the eternal life. First uh, John 1, 2, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. He has life in himself and always has. Not that some would suggest that only at the incarnation did Jesus re- receive this power and this life. But in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We can call Him the eternal life. Now, there's a word for this, aseity. That's that's the word for this particular doctrine of self-existence. And it can only be attributed to God. And as he explains his deity to, to the Jews in this chapter, it's evident that he didn't claim that his identity with the Father as one person. No. That's another false teaching. But he's, Jesus is asserting that his equality to God the Father, his relationship of love to God the Father, are not the same but equal. Again, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. This is why belief in the Son produces eternal life in the one who is believing. Also in John 1, in Him was life, and the life was the light of man. And there are other key passages that connect life and faith. Our life and belief. For God so loved the world, He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. And we have that connection with His shepherding work among His people as well. Those that He has given life to. In John 10.10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The grave could not hold the king of life, the prince of life. Peter tells us in Acts 2, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death 
Because it was not possible for him to be held by it. He is life. Peter in the next chapter, Acts 3 says, And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. Christ has life in himself. For he is the life. Thomas said to him, Lord, Lord, where are you going? We don't know the way. How can we know the way? And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the Life is used, I checked this out too in a little search. Life is used 47 times in the Gospel of John. And every single time it is speaking of what Jesus provides or who Jesus is. Friends, without God, everything else is death. Because he has life in himself, he can share that life with all who trust in him. A sovereign God brings dead souls to life so that they can hear and believe, thus providing eternal life to them. You got that? Now we can argue about the order that's called the ordo of salvation. A sovereign God brings dead to life, dead souls to life, so that they can hear and believe, thus providing them eternal life. The one who hears and believes is given life. And that's what we, we talked about in John chapter 3. That's what Jesus is telling Nicodemus. You must be born again. You're a dead soul. You must be born anew. You must be given new life. A.W. Pink spoke about this. Two things are here mentioned, which are evidences and results of having everlasting life. That they are usually regarded as two conditions. The hearing ear and the believing heart are the consequences of having eternal life not the qualifications of obtaining it. Then it is added and shall not come into condemnation. It guarantees the future. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Why? Why is there no condemnation? Why is there no Judgment for the, for the believer who is in Christ Jesus? Because the judgment fell upon the substitute. And he tells us here another reason why we don't come into condemnation, those who are believers, is because we passed from death into life. Passed from death, which is the condemnation, into life. So possession of eternal life is going to show itself in obedience and love. We'll see that a little bit later. <laughs> the bondage, that's our heritage with death, is broken on the cross. And the Holy Spirit's power flows through us, enabling us to express through righteous living here and now what God desires for us. And it is this eternal life which we possess, which believers possess immediately when we believe in the Son. John also tells us in 1 John 5, Whoever believes in the Son has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he's not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. 
Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. That's spiritual resurrection. Now, what's the second point? Okay, good, good. Three of you remembered. So Jesus has gone through this, up to this point, with this Jewish crowd. And I can't imagine the anger and hatred on their faces as he's speaking to them. Verse 27. He has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. An hour is coming when all who are in their tombs will hear this voice and come out, those who've done good to the resurrection of life, those who've done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So as the Father has imparted life in himself to the Son, so also he has given him the authority of judgment, the authority to judge. There's a different, there's an additional reason here uh, Jesus mentioned, and that's because he is the Son of Man. That, by the way, is referred to 80 times in the Gospels, and every single time Jesus is referring to himself as the Son of Man. That figure is not used anywhere else except in Daniel 7. That, that, Son of Man is not used anywhere else in Scripture except that Jesus is calling himself Son of Man. And it does refer to Daniel 7. It's definitely a messianic title. And those Jews that are standing there listening to him right now, they understand what Jesus means when he calls himself the Son of Man. And their brains are about to explode. used 12 times in John's gospel. So spiritual resurrection is only for those who hear and believe, but there is a future physical resurrection that is for everyone. Everyone who has ever lived, for Christians and unbelievers, the resurrection of life and the resurrection of judgment. Imagine this. Jesus cries out. It's going to be audible. It's clearly going to be audible. Jesus cries out and irresistibly billions and billions and billions of people will rise. Future physical resurrection. Those Christians... I'll be, I'll be here in a couple of days. But those Christians who are eaten by the lions in the Roman Colosseum, their bodies will rise. Those Christians who are hung on crosses and set around the Colosseum and lit on fire to light the area, their bodies will rise. Everyone ever blown up in an explosion or physically destroyed in any way will receive a new body, saved or lost. Future resurrection of physical life when believers are raised from the dead. Now, you can read about this more in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15. We don't have time for that now. You can read about it. And this resurrection is not reconstruction. It doesn't imply that God just takes all the pieces and puts them back together. It's a new body. It's a glorified body. It's going to be for believers. It's going to be a, a, a body, a, a, a glorified body that's suitable for the new heavenly environment. That's about as far as I can go because I don't have a clue. Death is not the end for the believer. Nor will we be in heaven as just disembodied spirits 
God saves the whole person, even the body. Paul tells us in Romans 8, 23, And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Paul tells us in Philippians 3, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. The resurrection of life will take place when Christ returns and calls His people. So that might be why Jesus in verse 28 says, Do not marvel at this. For the hour is coming. Don't marvel. He tells them, don't be amazed at this. Referring to those who hear His voice and those He calls and they all come forth from their graves on the last day. For the hour is coming is not what He's talking about anymore. Talking about it now is. There will be some who are raised to eternal life even as their dead souls are saved. But there will be all when Christ calls who comes in the future time. That final apocalyptic resurrection is in view in verse 28. And the voice of the Son is powerful enough to regenerate spiritual life now. It is also powerful enough to call forth the dead then at that future time. Hallelujah if you're a believer. And there's also the resurrection of judgment. Even as those who will need glorified bodies, those who trust Christ, those who embrace Jesus Christ, will need resurrection bodies to enjoy the glories of heaven, those who reject Christ will need resurrection bodies to endure the terrors of hell. All the lost will receive a new body as well. But it won't be a glorious one. It will be a body marred by sin, yet able to endure, in a sense, the tortures of hell. A.W. Pink said, As they had sinned in physical bodies, so shall they suffer in physical bodies. And what an event that will be. when the dead stand before Jesus Christ in judgment. The Father has committed all judgment to the Son and has given Him the authority to execute that judgment. And J.C. Ryle says, whether they like it or not, they will have to come forth from their graves at the last day to stand at Christ's bar None can escape his summons. When his voice calls them before him, all must obey. When men rise again, they will not all rise in the same condition. There will be two classes, two parties, two bodies. Not all will go to heaven. Not all will be saved. Today, Christ is the Savior. He came to... Seeking to save the lost. There will come a time where he will come as the judge. You see, there are two irresistible calls, I believe. One, when he calls you to himself. When God calls you, you can resist for a while, but ultimately, when God calls you to himself... You will repent and you will believe. It's an irresistible call. But that there's that day 
when that sound will come out and he will call everyone from their grave, billions and billions, everyone who's ever created, he will call forth and they will have to come. That's the second irresistible call. Believers will be given resurrection bodies so that they might reign with Christ in glory. Unbelievers will be given resurrection bodies, not glorified, that they might be judged and suffer punishment in those bodies. The bodies that are used for sin will suffer the consequences of sin. And the fact that Jesus has the authority in himself to raise the dead is proof that he is equal with the Father and therefore God. And he says there in verse 29, And they'll come out of their tombs, those who have done good in the resurrection of life. Wait, 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 that's a little side note. Wait, Pastor, don't you teach us that salvation is by grace and not by works? Don't you teach us that every day? What's this good? Those who've done good to the resurrection of life. You're right, by the way. Those who have done good is just a characteristic description of them. They will be raised because they have done good to resurrection of life, not so that they would be pardoned. Their works don't pardon them. The works authenticate their faith. It's a wonderful description. It's a reference to their walk, which reveals that they were new creatures, which reveals that God had placed a new nature in them. They walked worthy. They walked righteous lives. It authenticates their faith. That's what he means by those who have done good to the resurrection of life. For faith without works is dead. Your behavior verifies your faith. And besides, in this particular conversation, behavior is all that we have in common with unbelievers. It's the best of comparisons for Jesus to make. And you can't forget the context of all of this either when you look at that verse. Jesus is speaking to Jewish authorities, those who've condemned them. Why? On the basis of his works. They believe he's guilty of breaking the Sabbath by healing that man and by telling that man to carry his bed. And that's blasphemy and and he deserves the death sentence as a result of that. These people profess to be people of God and yet they dishonor the Son of God. They condemn others on the basis of their works. And Jesus reminds his enemies that this thing goes both ways. His work demonstrates that He is the Son of God. Their works will be the basis of their condemnation or their judgment. Their fruits will show the insincerity of their profession. Two closing thoughts, since this is an argument about the deity of Jesus Christ. The fact that all are in the tombs shall hear the voice of Christ when he says, come forth. Proves that he's just more than some exalted creature. Who is able to put all that together? Can you imagine? Our brains can't even take that in. Who is able to put all that together? Everyone God has ever created. Who can do that? The Son. And the second thing, only God is capable of acting as the judge at the great judgment. Only God can read the heart and only God can have the necessary wisdom to determine the sentence that's due each person who stands before that great white throne. So you see from start 
to finish in this wonderful passage, and we're only halfway through. From start to finish, you see the divinity of the Savior. You see the deity of the Savior. You see the equality of the Father and the Son. Go back to verse 23. All of this is so that they may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. That's why this passage teaches us to do. It's why we gather here to worship. Honoring Him as we honor the Father. Prostrate ourselves before Him in in an act of worship. Jesus is God. Continues making this point. We'll look at that next week. Listen to me. Those raised to salvation and those raised to damnation. That's what he's talking about in these last few verses I've talked about. Those raised to salvation and those raised to damnation. So the simple question, how does this apply to you? The answer is in verse 24. I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Grace as hard as this for, for us to understand and to put into words that are understandable, grace never happens apart from the willingness of the person to believe. Trust the substitute. Trust Christ's work on the cross for yourself today. Do it now. Let's pray. In a moment, we'll sing a closing song. During that song, Pastor Greg and others will be at the back, and we encourage you to, if you need prayer, if you need someone to talk to, if you have more questions. However, God leads you during that song. Just make your way back there to the back of this room. Spend time with them. Pray with them. Would you do that? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you that your Holy Spirit is the teacher. We pray, Lord, that you will move us from where we are to where you want us to be. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.